It's interesting that the Chinese president has started his first foreign trip since the outbreak of the pandemic. A stomp in Kazakhstan comes ahead of a summit with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, and other leaders of the Central Asia Security Group. And this is one of those stories where I think we have to watch and watch in a very big way, especially on the heels of Ukraine victories and taking back territory. Will Putin let that stand? Will he be reaching out to the Chinese for help? Ukraine's astonishing counteroffensive has now reclaimed an estimated 8,000 square kilometers of territory from fleeing Russian forces. In Izium, Russian tanks and equipment were abandoned. The city largely destroyed, but uplifted by a surprise visit from President Volodymyr Zelensky. Glory to Ukraine, he says. Glory to heroes came the reply. Zelensky saw the destruction left behind. The, the part of our real history and the part of, of modern today's Russian nation. Ukraine may be changing both the course of the war and the world's view of it. In Kazakhstan, Russia's neighbor, where regional leaders are meeting, the Kazakh leader fretted in English over geopolitical tensions. Critical juncture in human history. And he welcomed the Pope, a staunch critic of Russia's invasion, who called the war senseless and tragic. But that meeting is a prelude to a multi-nation summit this week in Uzbekistan, at which China's Xi Jinping will take center stage. Vladimir Putin said last week he will meet Xi at the summit. But Chinese officials yesterday would not confirm that. As recently as last month, Chinese troops were in Russia for joint exercises to demonstrate the closeness of the two military powers. But the turn in the Ukraine war may cause China's leader to distance himself from a losing cause if he meets Putin. That behind all those smiles, handshakes, there are some very difficult discussions as to what exactly the Chinese are prepared to do. And more than likely, Vladimir Putin is pleading with Xi Jinping for more help help that few experts think Xi will be willing to give. Not that tight. And she is too smart to fall for this. He's not going to give the Russians weapons. He, he knows which way the, the wind is blowing. Melinda Herring says to keep the wind blowing in Ukraine's favor, the West must supply more weapons and financing to ensure that what Ukraine has regained is not lost. Eric Sorensen, Global News, Toronto. Let's begin a conversation with... Florian Gassner, Associate Professor of Eastern and Northern European Studies at the University of British Columbia. Good to talk to you again. Thank you so very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Let's start this conversation. We'll continue on the other side of the bottom of the hour news and information. But the meeting between the Russian and the Chinese leadership, given what's going on in the war right now, what do you reckon the Putin's going to be asking? He's going to be asking above all for public support that he can showcase to the United Nations, to the world, that he has uh, somebody, another great power having his back. And the Chinese may say something polite in his face, but they will politely decline in the end. Because although Russia is an important strategic partner for uh, China, uh, their exports, their GDP are much more dependent off of the European market, off of the North American market. So he won't get very far with that. 
how gratifying is it to hear that, to be able to say that? It's, we were all at the beginning of the war worried how this will play out geopolitically, but uh, people with a lot of foresight said that this would ultimately lead to an isolation of Russia, that Russia had isolated itself in the long run, and it is a sign of the sanctions working, a sign of international pressure working, and hopefully it'll lead to, well, eventually peace in Ukraine. After the bottom-of-the-hour information, let's get into the war itself and how things have changed over the last few months, and then we can talk a little bit about um, what we expect to happen as winter is coming and the pressures that... Uh, that Ukraine will be under, as well as uh, as European leaders, as the cost of everything continues to go up. But for now, talk to us a little bit here about those relationships and about Putin's isolation. You talk about sanctions working. How are they working? What's your sense of how effective they are being? And can the West turn the screws even more? Well, the first thing that anecdotally demonstrates that the sanctions are working is that Putin turned off Nord Stream 1, the gas pipeline that goes to Germany from where the gas goes to the rest of Europe, and said he'll only open it up again if the sanctions are removed. And that is the clearest, most telltale sign. If the sanctions weren't working, why would he try to negotiate or to barter that way? And we can already see it in Russia itself, the numbers coming out of the country, that their imports have gone down significantly. significantly. Uh, unemployment is going up, and they have a massive brain drain. Everybody who can code, everybody who has a future, goes either to Kazakhstan or tries to escape to a Western country. And we see that eventually they're starting to run out of uh, high technology that is only available from the West. So... Uh, industries are shutting down, car manufacturers are shutting down because they don't get the parts. So it's as the people said in the beginning, the quickest sanctions would be just to stop buying gas and oil, but the economic sanctions, they will be a slow burn and they will bring the Russian economy down 6% already this year, and it's predicted to go down significantly further next year. At what point do you start to see the Russian people saying, we want something else, we want something else? That is a very that is a very tricky question because uh, it goes two ways. On the one hand, Russia doesn't have an active civil society, so the people don't have anything where they can inform themselves about alternative perspectives. Even though in state media we see that breaking down a little bit, but generally people don't have access through the main media of television and radio to alternative viewpoints. But on the flip side, we also, therefore, can't really look into Russian society because they don't have a civil society, a marketplace of ideas. And the rule of thumb, though, is the Russians will start to ask tough questions when their quality of life goes down. You saw the pictures when the war broke out and the sanctions came in and McDonald's closed, and there was this one guy who chained himself to the McDonald's door and said, he, doesn't, he will not uh, endure this. And that is the moment when we'll see that the Russians start asking tougher questions of their government when their life starts getting less prosperous. Florian Gassner is with us. He's an associate professor of Eastern and Northern European Studies at University of British Columbia. And, you know, uh, President Zelensky, who unfortunately got into a, a, a bit of a car accident, all reports are that he is okay. But, you know, I think about this Ukrainian war machine and the people that I have met 
here where I'm broadcasting from in Winnipeg with Ukrainian connections are not surprised when you put the question to them about the counterattack and getting the land back. Uh, the conversations I've had have some have gone something like this. You know what? With the right weaponry, the right training, we have an attitude that we're going to kick these and then all sorts of expletives out of our land. There is no way we're going to lose this war, no matter how long and what it takes. And I think the last few weeks have really proven this, hasn't it? And it is indeed in part, it's the equipment, but also simply the attitude and the training and the motivation of the armed forces of Ukraine. Because if you look at the Russian army, it's conscripts who were then semi-forced into contracts who are fighting for reasons they don't really understand, who aren't getting paid their salaries, who live in an environment of corruption and bribery. And their motivation is incredibly low, especially considering all the force attrition they've had. And the Ukrainians have been training new soldiers for the past six months. They're getting stronger. And we've now seen it on the battlefield that the training is excellent and they are able to pull off combined arms movements that the Russians can only dream of at this point. Let's talk a little bit and paint us a radio map, if you will, of where Ukraine is starting to take territory back from the Russians. Well, the, uh, the big advance was now in the north, or more specifically northeast, but we'll just call it the north, uh, east of uh, Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv. But it all started in the southern theater towards the city of Kherson. And now many people are saying that uh, Ukraine created a feint by pulling up troops outside of Kherson in the south and trying to attack it, pulling all forces from the eastern and northern front there to defend Kherson because it's a great strategic prize, and thereby weakening the front in the north and just overrunning uh, the Russian forces there. At this point, there's somewhere at minimum of 3,000 square kilometers up to 6,000 square kilometers of territory they have regained since then. But Kherson in the south also wasn't a feint in that sense. There's an operation going towards that city too, and it's moving forward just as a different strategy. In the north, you have open territory and you have battle. And there, of course, it makes sense to have the numbers of Russian defenders low, whereas in Kherson, the strategy is different because you're trying to take in a city. And the Ukrainians are trying to do that very cleverly by isolating the forces there and cutting off all of the resupply routes by bombing the bridges that lead into Kherson. Kherson is on the wrong side of the river. And so the plan there is to isolate and well, basically starve the Russian troops of munition and resupply. And, of course, there it doesn't matter if you're facing 10,000 or 30,000 soldiers. And that seems to be also panning out wonderfully. Ukrainian forces seem to be under 10 kilometers away from the airport of Kherson. So they're pushing in both directions. In the south, it's not moving as quickly, but moving also. And so is there a sense here that these battles are won in a matter of days or, or weeks? Or is this a lot longer campaign specifically in these areas? And then I have other questions about other parts of the country. Well, this Kherson theater, that will be slow moving because the Ukrainians, they are not Russians. They are not going to start shelling cities and civilian infrastructure. So they are not planning to bomb the Russians out of Kherson, but to isolate them and to push them out gradually. And that is something that will 
take time and you have to hand it to the Ukrainians there also. They're pacing themselves. They're not rushing in. They're trying to protect both their soldiers and the civilians in Kherson. In the north and northeast, we are unsure right now because the big surprise was that the front line of the Russians was uh, behind that there was nothing. There were no defenses there. And so the reason right now Ukraine isn't pushing further is they're regrouping, they're securing the territory they have. But this is a theater to watch for the next couple of days and weeks, because if they can get a good foothold, if they can get a good operational uh, foothold there, uh, then they could start pushing into the other occupied areas of Luhansk and Donetsk and try to retake territory that has been occupied since 2014. Florian Gassner is with us from the University of British Columbia. Richard Kluche with you. I am in Winnipeg, and uh, it is a pleasure to be with you. More questions for our guest. And the American and other nations, the armaments here, obviously the difference in so many ways, yet I still hear about the need for more, more training, um, more armaments, um, what can then tip the balance here as we go forward on this? Simply because I think now that you have momentum, you have other nations that are saying, well, maybe we can finish this off sooner rather than later. And it's it's just always unfortunate that the weapons came always a bit later than they were needed because many of these weapons and require also training first. So when... Uh, the Ukrainians got the high-mobility artillery rocket systems, which have famously now been used to obliterate the Russian ammunition depots. Uh, you can't just send them in there, but you need a couple of weeks, maybe even months of training for the crews to man them. And so it was always a little bit late. And the Western powers would typically say, well, these weapons are too complicated and it takes too long to train. But Ukrainians have always proved them wrong. And so this is the point to go all in. Uh, the majority is in agreement, and we're hoping to see more of that, especially from countries like Germany or France. What is Canada's role in training and helping here? They are uh, not a massive role. Like they, uh, Canada sent uh, troops to especially Poland to train uh, Ukrainian troops uh, in the theater there, but um, the main training uh, currently is happening in England. 5,000 troops just departed from England to go back to the war theater. And so the Canadian support is mainly that they provided you know, important symbolic help because they were among the first pushing for uh, howitzers to be sent there and to get smart ammunition to Ukraine, and also a huge financial support. I mean, Ukraine in the early weeks of the war pledged 1.5 billion uh, Canadian dollars to support the effort. So the moral leadership and the financial support go a long way. That's coming from Canada. And really, it's 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 the big players here, the European Union and the United States, that's fueling this, though. Yeah, especially the United States. They have put upside so much uh, cash. Uh, at this point, it's in the billions of what they have earmarked to buy and send weapons to Ukraine. But at the same time, also the Europeans, it says that the Germans, they sent in their Gepard uh, uh, anti-air uh, air defense tanks, which seemingly were important right now in taking uh, the Kharkiv region because they could neutralize any air def uh, any air raids from the Russian side. So all these major powers are really helping tip the balance in the favor of Ukraine. 
So how much of Ukrainian territory is still occupied by Russian troops? Until two weeks ago, it was about a fifth. <clears throat> and now they're, they haven't taken away a massive chunk of that yet, the Ukrainians, but they've taken back important strategic points. So now it's less than a fifth going towards a sixth especially if you consider that at the very beginning of the war, there was a huge incursion from the north heading towards Kiev. At this yeah. point, you have to consider that after six months of throwing everything at the war, Russia barely has a foothold on the country. We're speaking with Florian Gassner, Associate Professor of Eastern and Northern European Studies at the University of British Columbia. And so often we'll talk about the ins and outs of the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. But Professor, spend a moment about your connection to the region. Your passion. It's I've studied the area for a long time, but also I lived in I lived and worked in Donetsk in southeastern Ukraine in 2012 and 2013. So that has since 2014 been the epicenter of Russia's war against Ukraine. And so not only do I miss and love that part of the world, all of my friends who live there, they lost their homes, they emigrated somewhere else, they live all across Europe now. And so whenever I talk to them, it's we all always hope that one day we'll be back in Donetsk together and sitting in a cafe and you know, picking up the pieces where life ended in 2014. And that's going to happen. You know that. We are in, pa in the past. This was something we were talking about more hypothetically, but I was recently talking to a very close friend of mine who now is in immigration in Italy and it suddenly felt real. It suddenly felt like something we may end up doing actually next year. Let's talk about, though, the winter and uh, the pressures that governments are under. I was in Toronto recently speaking with a woman who was doing some contract work near Hamilton from Germany. And she says, I am so proud of my nation and how they have stood up to this and how our leadership is leading Talk about Germany here, if you could. Especially in economic terms. Germany, the population, there recently was a survey, and it shows that almost 80% of Germans say point blank, we don't care if energy is more expensive, we want our government to continue supporting Ukraine. So there is a, a wisdom there we haven't seen before is that if you indulge Russia in these things, you end up paying even more later on. It's a lesson uh, Germany in particular learned the hard way after 2014, 2015. And it is, as uh, the person you talked to said, it's uplifting to see a nation understanding that and supporting their neighbor. Is that shared across Europe? What are the nations where there are cracks right now? The biggest cracks we're seeing right now is in uh, one of the key members of the European Union, Italy, because uh, it appears uh, possible that uh, they will have a more right-wing government soon and a government that has been pushing to pull out from the support for Ukraine to pressure Ukraine to sue for peace. And uh, Sweden just also had a change in government. Hungary is an issue. So... It'll be uh, perilous, or we, we hope to see that throughout the next months and through the winter that the solidarity will hold strong. So will we see moves then from the European Union to help those nations 
that are struggling uh, and those populations that are struggling to keep the lights on? And this is just uh, today the European Union, the Parliament was working on that. On the one hand, uh, a lot of the oil companies have experienced a massive economic windfall from the oil and gas crisis, not through designer of their own. It's just something went wrong in the process, and the European Union is trying to take back these profits and funnel them into the pockets of consumers. And at the same time, they are you know, trying to enact policies to make energy more accessible to, especially the European Union has the power, hopefully, to cap energy prices to support consumers in that way. So at least within the European Union, uh, the governments are doing whatever they can to especially support low-income communities and families. And in that way, we might be able to get through this winter without major protests there as long as leaders lead. And I'm... Go ahead. And also what I was going to add is the one sobering uh, uh, discovery we've now had is, well, you have to think back 2014, 2015, not only had Russia attacked a neighbor, but also it shot down a a commercial airliner with almost 300 people on board. Mm -hmm. And the next Mm -hmm. thing the European Union did was lean into, especially Germany, lean into Russian gas deals. And this had always been presented to the public as inevitable. Russian gas is necessary. But as we've seen now, uh, Germany in particular has limited, before uh, the war broke out, Germany procured over 50% of its gas from Russia, and now it's down to 10%. So what we're all learning now that alternatives would have been available all this time along. It would have been maybe 10% more expensive. But so... We got gas cheaper for a couple of years, but now everybody's paying the price, and hopefully that's a lesson learned for the future. I think it is. I think of um, so many thousands of Ukrainians that are here in Canada right now, and I spoke with, with one not too long ago and said, I don't want to get too comfortable here because I have a home and I want to go back. And that, that, that sticks with you because while we are doing our best to accommodate, there are thousands that want to go home and we have to make that possible for them. And I think that's an important lesson also for the international community to learn because the picture we have been presented also through Russian information over the past couple of years is that Ukraine is an undesirable place. Like you don't even need to worry about Ukraine because the Ukrainians themselves would prefer to be anywhere else, be it in Russia or the European Union, because the country is so corrupt and defunct. But the most prominent case in point, I was thinking about that today when I saw that Zelensky was traveling to eastern Ukraine, like miles away from the front line. And like th- there were so many signs com- connected to that. On the one hand, like he is traveling to eastern Ukraine where Russian propaganda will let you believe that anybody there would shoot him on sight because they are all pro-Russian there and they hate the Ukrainian government, which of course is not the case. But the other thing, President Zelensky is the most prominent case in point for these people loving and wanting to return to their country because he had a way out. 
he has a villa in in Italy. He can he was offered a ride out by Western powers to get to safety. And that and he, is not going to happen. Professor Gastner, thanks so very much. We're up against the clock. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.